Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, January 13th, we are studying Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. King Herod's first attempt to find and destroy Jesus was foiled by the dream the Lord gave to the Magi. But King Herod would not be so easily persuaded to drop his campaign against the true king of the Jews. Today's text recounts Herod's horrific deed. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's good to be with you. Pastor Hemmer, as we get started this morning, give us some context. Where have we been in Matthew's gospel that brings us up to our text today? So we have we have come through the uh, very familiar Epiphany reading. Um, actually, I think the uh, the beginning of our yeah the beginning of our reading starts right after the the Gospel for Epiphany ends. So that is the visit of the uh, the Magi from the east, who have come these Gentile astrologers, wise men, and some hard magicians. Perhaps they have come to offer gifts and to worship the the recently born. Jewish baby whom they know to be the the king of the Jews by their question to Herod and by their worship to him they confess that he is also their king and their savior as well and so Matthew chapter 2 ends with their warning in a dream not to go back to Herod Herod they went first to, if you're looking for the king of the Jews, then you're going to go ask the current reigning king of the Jews, Herod, where his successor has recently been born. Herod is unaware that there has been a, a newborn king of the Jews, so he, he tries to deceive them, asking them to return to him, to tell him where this king of the Jews is to be born so that he may worship as well. And they, after having brought to the Holy Family, their gifts after having worshipped the infant or the toddler, Jesus, perhaps, then they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they go back another way. And that brings us to the middle of chapter 2, where there will be an, another dream, another warning about murderous King Herod, and the Lord God will intervene to keep the incarnate second person of the Trinity who has just received worship from these foreign kings, will intervene, keep him safe. Before we look at the text specifically today, Pastor Hemmer, you've mentioned the dream that the Lord used to warn the Magi, and that there's going to be a dream coming up in this text right away, too. In fact, more than one. What's what's going on with all these dreams in Matthew, both 1 and 2, as the Lord's chosen way to communicate with his people here? Well, uh, it's, it's not unique to Matthew either, um, but it is, it is a way in which God appears to his people when, when he is coming in the flesh in such an intimate and immediate, apart from means kind of way, then he will communicate with his people through, through various means, such as here you have dreams uh, in Luke's account, you get the, the visits of angels. Um, later on, the, the miracles of the apostles will confirm the word that they proclaim surrounding the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, God becoming man. There are all these sort of supernatural communications from God to men that serve to confirm the word that will be written down. So these dreams are sort of unique in that regard, in that we don't need them anymore. We don't need for God to speak to us in dreams, 
because now the account of the story of Jesus has been written down by the evangelist for us to hear the word of the apostles, which while they were proclaiming it, and was it was being confirmed by the signs that they were performing, that now has been written down for us, and in uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit, handed down to us in the the written scriptures. And all of these point back to those events, the testimony about the incarnate God who has come to be the Savior of all people, to save his people from their sins, as he is visiting his people in the person of Jesus, as that work is beginning to unfold, you'll see these kinds of things like dreams revealing the will of God for people in that immediate context. But for us, we don't need to rely on on sort of the uncertainty of dreams because we have the more certain thing now. We have the written and revealed Word of God. That's a very helpful answer for us today to put our trust in that written Word of God. These dreams, the angels that came and talked to these folks here in these dreams, that was God's way of confirming what otherwise they probably never would have believed. Now we've got the Word written by these people who witnessed it. That's where we put our trust. So let's take a look then at that written Word from Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Now when they, that's the Magi, had departed, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. There's the text for today, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. So, Pastor Hammer, the, the text that we have today starts with the angel of the Lord coming to Joseph in a dream and telling him to flee to Egypt. And there's plenty that we could talk about here. I guess where I'd like to start is, is Egypt as a place. Maybe it seems a bit odd of a choice for the Lord to send his son to Egypt because Egypt typically in the scriptures is the place of the enemy. That's where the Lord delivered his people from slavery. So why does he send his son to Egypt here? Yeah, Egypt uh, regularly signifies an enemy, sort of a regular enemy of God's people, but not always. If you think about the history of the Israelites, Egypt was the place where they were sustained during the time of famine. And so you have the story of another Joseph, um, the uh, the son of Jacob, whom God renamed Israel, who is you know sold into slavery by by the the deceit uh, and the trickery and the cunning of his brothers, and eventually lands in prison uh, on some unjust charges. Finally, after Pharaoh hears that Joseph can interpret dreams, he calls him out of prison to interpret his dreams about the impending famine, and then Joseph's plan for how the people of Egypt can survive that famine so impresses Pharaoh that he puts Joseph second in command over all Egypt. And then Joseph will bring, eventually you have this, the, the later interaction with his brothers, but he will bring his family 
to settle in Goshen, a very fertile place in Egypt, where they'll, they'll receive sort of the choicest land, and they will live there in a favored status as long as Joseph is reigning. And then as the book of Exodus begins, a new pharaoh who knew not Joseph arose, and the people have become too numerous, and so he enslaves the Israelites and puts the, the, the yoke of heavy labor upon them, forcing them to, to work to support the rest of the kingdom of Egypt. And it's from this predicament that God will bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. So it's important to understand and then Matthew, Matthew says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he'll use this word fulfill, I think, three different times in, in text in these 11 verses here. Um, sometimes there's, there's a direct scripture that he's quoting. Sometimes there's, it's, it's a little uh, more nebulous trying to figure out what scripture Matthew is, is saying that this account, this event in the life of Jesus is, in fact, fulfilling. Well, it's not, it's not that the exodus in Egypt is the central event, and it is so important that it casts its shadow forward all the way into the story of Jesus and shapes the events there. It's actually the other way around. The incarnation of God and the work that he does to save his people from their sins by means of his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension and his promised return, that is the central event of all history. And so that, the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, Jesus casts his shadow all the way back onto the, the Old Testament. All those stories... Jesus himself says, you search the scriptures because you think you have in them eternal life. But these are they that testify about me. So all those stories, even the story of, of the people being brought to safety in Egypt, being provided food there under the protection of one named Joseph, and then God bringing his people back out of Egypt after their life there had become burdensome, they had become slaves. That event is shaped by the account of Jesus being brought by his father, Joseph, into safety in Egypt to await the, the death of Herod, and then being brought back out of Egypt um, such that God is calling his son out of Egypt. I'm calling my son Israel out of Egypt. That's the event that lends its shape to the Old Testament account of the exodus of God's people. That's a, a wonderful take on it, and I think really helps us to, to go through Matthew particularly, because as you pointed out, he will use this word fulfill three times just in this text and several more times throughout his gospel to see the story of Christ as the center, and God knowing that that's what was going to happen all along, everything ahead of time he shaped in that way, to preach Christ to his people ahead of time so that when he showed up, they were to look at that life and say, oh, the Lord's been doing that all along. He's been preaching this, this gospel to us all along, and here it is for us to see, to behold, to believe. And so that's, that's how this, this quotation, this quotation here that we're talking about right now in, in verse 15 of the text is from Hosea chapter 11. Is, is there anything there in Hosea 11 that, that we would read there that helps inform what Matthew's doing with it here in chapter 2? Well, it's certainly an interesting insight into the name that was given to Jesus back in chapter 1. What Matthew quotes here is, is Hosea 11, 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There you've got a very truncated, summarized account of the Exodus. But we know that, that the history of, of God's people after the Exodus is not like a who's who of the most faithful people in history. It is rather an account of their idolatry and their, 
their tendency to be turning away from God, to worship false gods, to put trust in themselves, their, their inability to keep his law from the time that he's brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And so that's where Hosea 11 goes right after that. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. This, this is a summary of the rest of the history of God's people, from the time that he brings them out of slavery in Egypt through the, their uh, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, when he brings them into the promised land, when he gives them the judges to rule over them, when he gives the kings to rule over them, and when finally he destroys them, the northern kingdom first, and then the southern kingdom by the, the Assyrian and the Babylonian armies, that story is summarized by what Hosea says here. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And this is the reason that God finally carries them off into exile, why, why he finally destroys their kingdoms. And, and their predicament that they cannot free themselves from idolatry is our predicament as well. And it's the reason that this one whom they named Jesus had to come, why God had to come in human flesh and be given the name that means Savior, or as the angel says, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So all, all of this work in the past, all of this has pointed forward to our desperate need for a Savior save us from our idolatry that we cannot extricate ourselves from. We cannot free ourselves from the worship of all of these false gods. So Hosea has one, you know, bright shining verse at the beginning of chapter 11, but then, then it goes off the rails quickly thereafter. And then, so, but Jesus then, as this verse would apply to him, that one shining verse there at Hosea 11 doesn't go off the rails for Jesus, though. Where where oh, the absolutely. people of Israel failed, the Lord succeeds. That's part of right. what Matthew's doing too here, too, right? Exactly, exactly. So that God wanted Israel to be a faithful son, and and He never was. Ethnic Israel as a nation is never a good and faithful son. There, there is no one in the history of Israel. Who, who does all the commandments perfectly and faithfully. So it is a son who has wandered away from his father, who's wandered off to false gods. But now in Jesus, you have the only faithful Israelite. You have the only one whom God can really call a son because of his faithfulness, because of his obedience, because also of his eternal sonship to the eternal father himself, uh, but also because of his faithfulness. So he then is the only begotten, the only faithful son of God. So what happens to Israel, her, uh, Israel's faithlessness in pursuing all the false gods does not happen to Jesus. He does not pursue after, after any false gods, but rather is, is here now to ransom and redeem all those who have, who have gone astray, who are part of the, the faithless son, Israel. Before we move on too far, and, and I, that's, that's the main theme here that we're going to see, not only in this text, but throughout Matthew, is that Jesus is faithful where Israel and sinners are faithless. But before we move on from this text too far, one of the, the underlying currents that I think is there, and it, I think it goes through the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2, is, is Joseph. He, he stands out as a, a faithful Christian, can, can you comment a little bit upon Joseph's role here, Pastor Hammer? Yeah, look look at what he is willing to undertake for the call that's been given to him. He's he's willing to endure the the shame and the scandal of having the woman to whom he is betrothed pregnant out of wedlock with presumably people know a child that is not his. Um, he's willing to endure that scandal 
in order to protect Mary and more so to protect the child, the one who is given to her. She's conceived by God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's willing to endure that for the calling that he's given. This is why when we commemorate Joseph, the so-called father of Jesus, who has no blood relation to, to Jesus, we commemorate him in the church's calendar as, as the guardian of Jesus. This, this is the role that he is called into, and this is, this is what you see him doing. So he's willing to take Mary as his own. He is righteous and faithful towards her, only based on, on the word of, of God given to him by the angel, Mary's not unfaithful. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he's willing to undertake this this task for which he's presumably given no thanks. Um, he's he's willing to uproot his family and move from Bethlehem at the time to Egypt when when it's time for the family to return from Egypt. It's Joseph who's who's credited with bringing his family back out of Egypt. Um, it's the Lord who appears to him in the dream, and he keeps this baby safe. Yes, less of a baby by then. This this young boy safe from from murderous King Herod, and and you see in in the story of Joseph, kind of the same thing. Maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Kind of the same thing you see in the story of of those baby boys of Bethlehem. Everyone is going out of his way to protect Jesus, not, not because of, of Jesus' frailty or, or the danger to his life that he's always in, but so that he might lay his life down willingly for Joseph, for the boys of Bethlehem, for all Israel, for the Gentiles, as represented by these magi who had come to worship him, Joseph is the physical guardian of Jesus and does, does a, a Herculean, wonderful job in protecting this boy, but his protection of the boy only serves for his own salvation because it allows Jesus later to give his life as a ransom for Joseph as well. So that this faithfulness of Joseph brackets the text of Herod killing the holy innocents, as we often talk about it. And we've got three minutes or so here before the break, before we to, to start looking at it, Pastor Himmer. So maybe start by just giving us some of the, the historical details. It's a, it's a very striking text, no doubt, one that's, that's troubling to many, I think. And we'll, we'll get into that on the other side. But just in terms of, of the details, we're told that, that Herod realizes he's been outwitted, and so he's, he's terribly angry, and he, he sends to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region that are two years old or under. So, I mean, just in terms of an event, what, what kind of event are we talking about here? What was the scope of it? So this, uh, this is pure wickedness, pure evil. It shows the nature of, of the human heart, that Herod is, is so afraid of losing his, his earthly human position that he will stop at nothing to protect himself, that he will, he will even have a whole town, town's worth of baby and toddler boys murdered in order to protect himself. And yet here you see another similarity with, with the story of the people of God in Egypt, where the slaughter of all the Hebrew boys is commanded by Pharaoh, again, to protect himself, to, to save his own hide, to keep himself on the throne, and to keep the, the people of God subjugated to, to his rule underneath the, the slavery that, that has been imposed on them so that they don't grow too numerous. So you have that, that parallel there as well. But, but you can also see a really clear parallel in, in our modern times and, and also throughout all of history. 
um, we just if the the sort of hot button item in the news now is is the uh, the acceptance speech of the uh, the actress who who got best actress um, where where she was so grateful for a woman's right to choose by that euphemism she means to choose to have her unborn children murdered in order that she might pursue whatever career whatever status she aims at without the encumbrance uh, without the burden of children well that's that's no different from from Herod's wicked slaughter of all the boys of Bethlehem and and it's no different from the the evil of man's heart that will stop at nothing to protect himself even even slaughtering innocent children that's a very sobering text indeed one that brings to mind the need for repentance for us all that evil that dwells within our heart that would look to harm another rather than to sacrifice ourselves as we see our Lord Jesus Christ do. We're here on Sharper Iron looking at Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, January 13th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 with Pastor Jeff Hemmer of Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, prior to the break, we'd begun to look at the account of the slaughter of the holy innocents and how utterly wicked Herod was to slaughter even children to protect himself. Keep keep digging into that event for us and, and talk about what's going on there further. Yeah, so there's there's really no escaping the tragedy of this situation. And this is one of those kinds of questions, one, one of those kinds of accounts where if you were making up a religion, you you probably would not include a detail like this in in the account of your hero, your savior. You would have everyone you would have him be like a King Midas. And and everywhere he goes, everything turns to gold. But here, because of the existence of God in the flesh, so called Innocent children are slaughtered. So scripture and the church are never are never shy about the question of evil. This what Herod carries out against these boys is pure evil. And to really press down even further in that, it is it is evil that's brought about because of the existence of of Jesus, that he has come is what precipitates the slaughter of of these boys. And and the church is willing so much to endure this question that she puts the feast day for these baby boys of Bethlehem, we call it the the Feast of the Holy Innocents, on on the fourth day of Christmas, December 28th, So, so that on those days following the day when we have all this joy and celebrating the, the birth of God in the flesh, the next day, December 26th, is the Feast of St. Stephen, who is the first martyr. Um, then on December 27th, we have the Feast Day of St. John, whose life doesn't go so well. Um, he could have had a long and successful career as a fisherman instead. At the end of his life, he finds himself uh, in trouble with the authorities and exiled to the island of Patmos, cut, away, cut off from, from those presumably he loves and, and knows back home. That's um, no success story. And then on the fourth day of Christmas, December 28th, you get 
these boys of Bethlehem and, and the country around who are not martyrs in will, the church says, but they are they're martyrs indeed. They shed their blood to protect him who has come, who has blood, in order that he might shed it to save them, not from temporal death, but to save them from eternal death. So there's, there's no real answer to the question of evil, except evil is so abhorrent to God that he took on human flesh and entered into his creation and would endure the most, the absolute worst evil mankind could ever concoct. Do you know what's worse than slaughtering all the boys of Bethlehem? Slaughtering God in the flesh, which the Roman authorities and the Jewish authority and the people and all sinners will conspire to do against Jesus. So this, this is a sign of that. And that, the death of Jesus on the cross, gives hope even to these slaughtered boys of Bethlehem, that the one whose life they guard temporarily came to give his life eternally in exchange for theirs. Ultimately, whenever we bring up this problem of evil or the question of evil, we have to fix our eyes on the cross, don't we? Anywhere else we're left wondering and, and in despair. But the right. cross, that's our hope. The, the cross and the resurrection. So on the cross, God endures evil, and in the resurrection, he undoes evil. That, and that's, that's evil that has been wrought on creation because of the, the chaos of sin. The devil, the world, and, and sinful human beings are the ones who have brought evil into the world. God is not complicit in that evil, but he will use evil especially the evil of the death of God on the cross, to be the greatest good for all mankind. And then his resurrection, that he gives to all the baptized a share of, a share in his real flesh and blood resurrection, back up from the grave, body back to life now with a, a spiritual body that retains its materiality in a, in a mysterious and incomprehensible and wonderful kind of way, that's what undoes evil for us, is, is the resurrection of our bodies on the day of Jesus' return. And the share of his resurrection that is already ours and that gives us hope in the midst of evil because of what God has accomplished for us in, in the waters of baptism. But it is, it's, it's the work of Jesus that is God's answer to evil. So then Matthew quotes, now for the second time we hear the, the words that something was fulfilled, and here he quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. Take us into that, that Jeremiah quotation Matthew gives us. Yeah, so Jeremiah is, is appropriating, in his own words, uh, the voice of, of Rachel weeping uh, for her children because they are no more. Now, now this is the... Uh, the result of the people being carried off into exile, which causes a kind of communal weeping. But the promise immediately thereafter in Jeremiah 31, thus this is followed with, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your ears from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they, that is your children, shall come back from the land of the enemy. So, this is a, a promise of, of return from exile. Now, what, what the prophet Jeremiah, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, has done is odd and, and a little bit confusing, that he has taken Rachel's voice to signify the, the weeping of the people of God as a result of the, the exile, their, their children— so to speak, being carried off by the, the foreign conquering armies. Well, Rachel doesn't weep for her children. She dies in childbirth. She, um, one of the wives of Jacob, renamed Israel, and the one whom he wanted from the very beginning, she is the mother of Joseph, 
the Joseph we mentioned earlier, Israel's favorite son. And she's also the mother of Benjamin. And it's in giving birth to Benjamin that, that Rachel dies. So she doesn't actually have opportunity to weep for her children. But the sort of bitterness that was her life before in the absence of children comes to signify the weeping of God's people who, who face this kind of inversion. We had children, and then the exile makes us as, as barren women again. So Rachel weeping for the children she had not yet been given, kind of. Uh, but then the promise, as Jeremiah presses on, is that God will bring your children back out of exile. And so this then, uh, Matthew says, the the slaughter of the baby boys of Bethlehem fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Here again, it's the story of Jesus that's casting its shadow all the way back on the, the events of the exile, the events of the life of Jacob and his wives and, and his sons. The story of Jesus is giving shape to all of those so that they make the most sense in light of the in light of the incarnation, crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, that tells us what all of those events were truly about. So the the shadow of Jesus' story casting itself back upon the Old Testament, then in the case of Jeremiah thirty one, the hope that is given there in Jeremiah thirty one is based on Christ's resurrection. Is is that how that would work? That's that's the full fulfillment of of all the return from exile promises. So even we now live in a kind of exile apart from the homeland that we have been promised, right? See how that runs parallel to the story of God's people in the Old Testament. He brought them into the promised land, but then but then they were displaced out of that land because of their idolatry, because of their unfaithfulness. So also we, because of our own inherent inbred unfaithfulness and idolatry are exiles waiting for a restoration into the renewed heavens and earth, the, the, the promised land that God has made to all of his people that will be fully and finally ours on the day of our resurrection. When we are brought out of the exile of this world into the goodness of God's creation restored. This talk of the casting the shadow back on the Old Testament, I really, I really like that. It's, I find it very helpful. And, and as you're as you're talking there, it's it's almost like, you know, Jesus will say later in the Gospels, "Pick up your cross and follow me." And so it's it's like he's said that to the people of the Old Testament too, but maybe they didn't realize it, or you don't realize that that's what was said to them until you see him come and say that now to us. So so his shadow cast itself back on the Old Testament so that his people in the Old Testament picked up their cross and followed him. Their lives mirrored his own. And now his shadow casts itself forward upon us so that we pick up our cross. I mean, so it's, again, he stands in the center and his shadow goes both ways, shaping the lives of the people before his coming and after his coming, right? Absolutely. Our, Our lives, just like theirs, before they knew all the details of the story, God's people to whom he had promised a savior to redeem them from from their sin and from the brokenness of creation they simply lived on the promise that they had in god without knowing all the details without knowing how that salvation would would unfold for them but they knew that it was coming and so they saved by jesus even before he had the name jesus even before his incarnation well before his crucifixion they're they're all saved by jesus well that event then the, the cross casts its shadow forward over us as well, so that we who now know the details, nevertheless, just as they did, we live by the promise that God has made to us, that we, we are in the death of Jesus because of what God has done to us in the waters of holy baptism. And so our lives, just like theirs, our lives take on a cross shape to them, a cruciform shape to our lives, such that we we can endure all things. We can endure a world hating us for the name of Jesus that we bear. 
we can endure persecution. We can, if if God so wills it, endure the death of martyrdom, just like these these boys of Bethlehem. Why? Because our lives are shaped by the cross as well, and the cross transforms our hope away from the the things of this world that are so quickly passing away into the hope of the world to come, the the eternal things that God has promised will not ever pass away, that that we ourselves were created for eternity and not to be distracted by the the temporal passing away things of of this world. So after finishing that quotation then, the, the account continues, Herod died, and now the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream again. He's in Egypt this time, says, go back to the land of Israel. About, I mean, give us some of the historical details, if you can, Pastor Hemmer. How much, how much time has passed here? What do we know about Herod Archelaus, who's, who's reigning in Judea, and, and that Joseph's afraid to go there? What are, what are some of those details that maybe help flesh out this picture a bit? Yeah, so Herod the, the Great... Um, which when I was talking uh, with this section of Scripture with my son, um, I said that's just a great way for a father to distinguish himself from his children. Um, <laughs> though it's, it's more known to us by, by history. Uh, he's, he's called the Great because he's, he's the, the Herod who sort of sets the pattern for Herods to come thereafter. Uh, and and that, that's, that's the, the legacy of, of House of Herod, is that each one will try to be more evil and and more wicked and make a name for himself by means of his treachery more so than than his father so herod the great dies in about 1 bc which means uh jesus himself is born still in the the lingering years of uh the the time before christ with a a dating error uh the makers of the calendar thereafter so he's he's born probably about 6 BC and Herod dies it, it takes maybe 2 years for the magi to come so you've got by the time they get to Bethlehem um they're remaining in Bethlehem as this census is being carried out remaining in the the city of David um but they don't find uh, a sort of nursing infant when they get there they they arrive to find of a, a toddler Jesus, which is why Herod has to kill all the baby boys of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, so that he covers that whole span from the time when the star appeared to announce the birth of the Lord's Messiah until the Magi actually arrived. And so then Jesus is carried away by, by his father. The Holy Family is taken to safety in Egypt until Herod dies. So you've got you've got a four- to five-year-old Jesus, who is returning with his family now, um, but they won't return to Jerusalem. They won't be um, in Judea anymore because Archelaus wants to be even even worse than his father, Herod. Um, so they withdraw up to the north to the district of Galilee, and there we'll, we'll settle in the, in the city of, of Nazareth. And so Matthew then tells us in the last verse of the text we've got today that this withdrawing to Nazareth and, and growing up in Nazareth, that this fulfills what was spoken by the prophets. And he does say the prophets, not the prophet this time, which is probably significant. But, it, but the quotation Matthew offers, or the words Matthew offers, are, he shall be called a Nazarene. And Pastor Himmer, unless I'm mistaken, if you read through the Old Testament and try to find the words, he shall be called a Nazarene, you won't find that quotation like that in the Old Testament from any of the prophets. So this has been a question for many throughout the ages since Matthew wrote his gospel. What is he talking about? What's being fulfilled here by Jesus? This, this is a hard verse, and this, uh, this almost serves as proof, then, that later editors did not smooth out all the nuances of the text that the Holy Spirit has given to Matthew to put in there, because we would have a lot easier time if we if this little verse had not been included, because it seems like Matthew is is quoting something that's not there, or it seems like he's 
playing really fast and loose with with Old Testament prophecies, not not here, but but earlier. But now it seems with the third time that he uses the word fulfill and seems to have a verse that just isn't there, that that he's really gone off the rails. But but actually that that tells you how dislocated our modern way of looking at the scriptures has come from from the way in which Matthew and and the early church fathers and and the church for millennia has has read the scriptures and that and that is what we've been trying to say here in our time that that the the central event of history the incarnation crucifixion resurrection of god in the flesh is so significant that everything written down in the scriptures before that is because of that event. So Matthew doesn't quote any prophet in particular here, but he rather summarizes what what a handful of prophets sort of hint at. And that is, like, uh, well, if you see in the footnote in, in the Bible, uh, the, uh, the the suffering servant song of Isaiah 52 and 53 includes this prophecy about the coming servant, the coming Messiah of the Lord, that he will have beauty that we should desire him, nothing in him that attracts us to him. Well, in Matthew's understanding, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that that's the same as saying it's as if the Messiah came from Nazareth. And and we don't understand that, but but Nathaniel understands that that Nazareth is the hick town, and no king to born to be born to rule over his people would come from the sticks of Nazareth. So you know Nathaniel can say Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? In in a genuine kind of question, there, it's, it's just impossible for the Lord's Messiah to come from such a, a backwater place. And yet, that's, that's what the prophets, in their various prophecies, but nevertheless, unanimously with one voice have said, there is nothing in the Lord's Messiah that should attract us to him. And so Matthew can summarize all of that saying, well, he'll be a Nazarene. So when Matthew says he shall be called a Nazarene, that's his way of, of saying he shall be despised, he'll be rejected, all those things from, from Isaiah 53 that we're familiar with. Matthew sums it up by being a Nazarene, and so going to live in Nazareth then fulfills that. Rather than fulfilling a specific verse, as he's done previously, this is one of those more overarching themes from the Old Testament that we see that the Lord's Savior, the Lord's promised Christ when he comes, isn't going to come in some flashy, powerful way according to the standards of man, but rather he's going to come in a despised, humble way to bring God's salvation. So it's not so much a specific verse as it is one of those overarching themes that you see in the Old Testament. Exactly. He will be despised. So with that, Pastor Herman, we've got about four and a half minutes left here to, to talk about some of the, the themes, overall arching themes of, of this text that we, we look at. One of the things that I think stands out to me is that, well, thinking about the previous text in Matthew chapter 2, the, the account of the Epiphany, you have this, this contrast between Herod as king of the Jews and Jesus as king of the Jews, and, and which one is the real king? And, and I think that that theme gets carried forward a bit here as well, where despite all appearances, Jesus shows himself to be that true king, even as a little boy, even as one who doesn't really talk or seemingly act, yet he remains the true king here, even over Herod, despite all of Herod's attempts. He's the king, and, and it shows through these fulfillments of scriptures. We got... Now about three and a half minutes left. Pastor Hemmer, kind of summarize some of the themes for us this morning. Anything that we haven't talked about yet that needs to be brought out as we, we draw this to a close? Yeah, well, well, you know who really gets it about Jesus being the true king is, is Satan. And so what we are witnessing here as, as Matthew 2 draws to its close is, is this, this uh, frustration from Satan, this uh, frantic fear 
that his kingdom will be toppled, not by Herod, not by any earthly despot, um, not, not even by angels appearing to human beings, but it is the breaking into the kingdom of the world by God himself that absolutely scares the devil silly. And so what Herod does is not purely because of Herod's own evil, but Herod is is himself an instrument of Satan. And and because the reason he will stop at nothing to to kill off the coming king of the Jews and the, the glory of Israel and, and the light of the the nations, as as Simeon prophesied that, that Jesus would be the savior of all people, Herod will stop at nothing because Satan will stop at nothing. And Herod Archelaus will stop at nothing because Satan will stop at nothing. And, and really, there is no safety for any human being in, in the world. Even, even these innocent boys of Bethlehem, who we, we call them innocents, but we know that they're indeed sinners, sinful from the time that they were conceived, they, they are nothing, and Satan... With, with his earthly minions, will just steamroll over them. The only safety that, that any human being can have with in, when faced with this fight between good and evil, light and dark, God and his adversary Lucifer, the only safety man can find while the devil prowls around like a lion is with God himself, who is the stronger man, who alone has the capacity to undo the strong man's hold on his creation. And you see that even now in this story, as this fight between good and evil, God and Satan, light and dark, is unfolding. God is always triumphing, but the devil is always trying his best to disrupt God's plan of saving sinners by the sacrifice of his own son on the cross. Pastor Jeff Hemmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Pastor Hemmer, thank you for your time today. It has been a pleasure. Try as he may, Satan cannot disrupt the kingdom that Christ brings, the true kingdom where our safety lies in the crucified and risen one who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom of marvelous light. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron. Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.